Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Second Peter chapter 1, we're reading verses 1 through 4. Second Peter 1, 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained the faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Good morning. Thank you for reading, Dylan. Uh, That is the passage we're going to be in this morning. We are uh, starting a new series this morning. I'll explain uh, why and what we'll be talking about as we go along. So let's ask for the Lord's help as we get into it. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for bringing us together. It is uh, good to be your people. It is good to gather together. Uh, Thank you for um, bringing us back from different places, Uh, me from sabbatical a couple weeks ago, and so many folks from from different travels and even holiday weekends, and uh, you were with us everywhere we went. Uh, That's one of the the great comforts uh, to our soul is that our our God is always with us. We we believe theologically you are omnipresent, Uh, but then we have a personal promise where uh, you, Jesus, told us you'd be with us always all the way to the end of the age. We just thank you for that. Thank you that you're here with us now. And uh, we would invite you to be our teacher uh, and uh, to take these words, uh, my frail words, and apply them to our hearts, help our our minds to understand, and each one of us to to apply to our own lives uh, the things you want to say to us today in the words of, of, of Scripture. In Jesus' name we ask all this. Amen. Well, it never got as bad as they thought it would, but last week there was serious concern that California was going to run out of power. I don't know if you saw this in the news, but uh, there's been a heat wave out in California for the last several weeks, and and last week it got especially hot. They were up in triple-digits temperatures in a lot of parts of California, and uh, when the temperatures go up like that, uh, the demand for air conditioning goes up too. And so the heat wave meant there was more demand for electricity. Most, electri- you know, most AC units are, are run off of electricity. And so there was higher heat, more demand for electricity, uh, and that was, they anticipated, would put a, a strain on the power grid. And, and for reasons I'm not even going to begin to try to sort out, uh, California's power grid isn't always able to handle that, that increased demand. And so state officials were worried. They were really concerned. It made national news that there was going to be, you know, blowouts and blackouts and brownouts and all that kind of stuff. And so they actually, I think even their governor made a, you know, made an announcement and asked people to cut back, cut back for the next several days while the heat is the worst. 
Uh, don't use so much air conditioning. If you've got an electric car, don't charge it, that kind of stuff. And, and it was tough. It was, it was hard on people. Like I say, it never got as bad as they thought it would, but people did have to make those sacrifices. And, and it was hard because just when they needed power the most, they couldn't count on it. Their source of power was not reliable just when they needed it the most. Well, I can't help California this morning, but if you ever feel that way, if you ever feel like you do not have the power you need for the demands on your life, I got good news. I got some very good news. The good news is found right here in the opening words of 2 Peter. Uh, that, uh, that's what we're going to be looking at, because according to today's passage, you and I have access, direct and ready access, to the power that we need for our lives. And, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about how the Lord gives us ready access to the power we need. Uh, we are starting a new series this morning. Uh, we're uh, going to actually put two books together this fall. Uh, we're going to put two New Testament books together for the next 10 weeks, Second Peter and Jude. Second Peter and Jude. And the reason, let me just throw my title slide up here. Uh, the reason I, I want to combine these two books, you say, why these two? Well, they have a lot of things in common, actually, that make them good books to study together. Uh, first of all, they're both short. They're both short books. Uh, Second Peter only has three chapters. Jude only has one. And so logistically, when I sat down with my preaching calendar and was looking at this fall, uh, they actually fit very nicely. Those two books together fit very nicely into the, the time we have before we get to the holidays. So there's a very practical, very logistical reason to, to treat them together. Another thing they have in common is that they were both written, now we, we get to more uh, important reasons, uh, they were both written by, by a man who knew Jesus well. Both authors knew Jesus well. They had a close and, and intimate personal relationship with Jesus. Um, Second Peter, let's start with that one. I'm actually going to start with Second Peter. We'll spend the first seven weeks there. Uh, Second Peter was written by Peter. It was written by the Apostle Peter. Uh, and you might remember from your own reading in the Gospels who Peter is. Peter was a close friend of Jesus. Of course, all the, the, uh, the, the Apostles, all those disciples uh, knew Jesus very well. They traveled with him everywhere. But, but when you read through the Gospels, it's, it's pretty clear Je uh, Peter was, was especially close to Jesus. Uh, he was actually one of the first four of the, the first four disciples to respond to Jesus. You, can, you see that in uh, the Gospel of John, for example, in chapter 1. Peter's one of the first four to follow Jesus. Um, he's also part of this inner group. And uh, I don't mean to insinuate Jesus played favorites, but, but there were three of the 12 that Jesus uh, would invest, he invested in especially. And, and it seems like he was grooming them for leadership. And so he would take, uh, take them on special missions sometimes that the others weren't part of. And Peter was one of those three. And so there's passages where we read, Peter, James, and John went with Jesus while the others stayed, uh, stayed back. The Transfiguration is probably the most uh, famous example of that. Only Peter, James, and John saw the Transfiguration. The other nine uh, did not. And so Peter, as you think about the guy who wrote the first book we're looking at here, Peter wasn't just an apostle. Uh, he was a close friend of Jesus. He knew Jesus very well. The other book, the other one we'll look at, uh, was also written by someone who knew Jesus very well. It was his brother, uh, one of his, his uh, biological half-brothers, we would say. They shared Mary as a mother. Uh, we, we would say as Protestants. Uh, Catholics would agree. They would just say that they had, uh, that Joseph was uh, the, the other guy's brother. But, um, but we would say it's Mary. Mary is their mother. 
Uh, we read about uh, Jude in Mark. He's actually in Mark chapter 6. Uh, Mark chapter 6, uh, Jesus goes back to Nazareth. Jesus goes back to Nazareth, to his hometown, the place where he grew up, and he's doing miracles and he's teaching, and the people are shocked by what he's doing, and not in a good way, because they know this guy, and they're like, where'd this come from? This is uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 3. People of Nazareth are talking. Where did this man get these things? We know him. Where did he get this stuff? What is this wisdom given to him? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of, here comes the names, James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And then they mention some sisters as well. Uh, The third brother, that's our author. That's who wrote the book of Jude. Uh, he's called Judas there in, uh, in Mark 6. Uh, Judas is the Hebrew form. Jude is the Greek form, but it's the same name. Judas or Judah, actually, is probably what, what he would, would have been called. And so, um, and so Judah, or Jude, Judah, Judas, uh, not the bad Judas, the good Judas, uh, is his brother. It's his biological brother. So, so he knew Jesus well, too, right? He, he grew up with Jesus. He may well have known uh, Jesus even better than Peter did, at least in terms of, of length of time. So as we look at these two books, we'll, we'll, we'll keep that in our minds. These aren't, you know, people like, like you know, say, Paul, who, who meets Jesus on the Damascus Road, but didn't witness his earthly ministry. Uh, Peter and, and Jude did. They were intimately acquainted with Jesus. Uh, These books were also written, what else do they have in common? Well, they're both written to a general audience. They are what we call general epistles. Uh, A lot of the letters we study, when we study New Testament letters, a lot of those letters are written to um, specific cities. So you think a lot of Paul's letters, Galatians is written to the churches in a region called Galatia. Uh, Philippians is written to a city, uh, the Christians in a city called Philippi. Colossians written to the Christians in Colossae and so on. Um, These two letters were both, uh, they actually fall in a category we call general epistles. And the reason for that is that they aren't specified to a specific, they're not directed to a specific audience. They were written to Christians in general, kind of throughout the region. And that's worth paying attention to because it it tells us the issues they're dealing with sometimes. It it gives, there's usually a broader sense to it. Some of Paul's letters, he's dealing with specific issues. Like, you know, if you read through Corinthians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, there are specific issues that the other churches dealt with in their own way, but things the Corinthians were dealing with that Paul addresses. Um, you won't see that as much in Second Peter and in Jude. And so they're both general epistles. The biggest reason, though, the biggest reason uh, to put these two letters together, it's not just because uh, of what they have in common with the author and they're both being short. Uh, the real reason is that they address many of the same issues. They're, they're very close thematically. In fact, most of the commentaries that deal with one will deal with the other. It's very, it makes it cheaper for me when I'm buying commentaries, because Second Peter and Jude are almost always, not always, but almost always put together, because they have so much in common in terms of the themes that they address. Uh, and and I'm, you know, I'll show you in just a second what I mean, uh, but uh, my series, I'm calling this series Living with Sense in Serious Times, And these two men are dealing with serious issues. They're dealing with serious issues in this letter, ones that that we deal with as well. For example, and we'll say more about these as we go along in the different weeks, but uh, one issue they both deal with is morality, right? They, They were both addressing situations where people were claiming that morality doesn't matter. 
for believers, not just the world, but for believers, the way Christians live. It doesn't matter. We're, we're free. We can do whatever we want. Uh, and both men deal with that issue in their letter. Uh, they both deal with the problem of unethical Christian leaders. If you pay any attention to Christian news, you know the, the subculture of what goes on in Christendom. Uh, you know that's a big issue in our day. Unethical Christian leaders. They were both dealing with it in spades. Uh, they both deal with false teaching about Jesus flowing from those unethical leaders. Uh, they both deal with uh, the claim that truth doesn't matter. We'll see this surface in both letters. Everybody gets to decide for themselves what's true. There is no objective truth. It's, a, it's an issue in both letters. And they both deal with doubts about the return of Christ. Uh, Peter more, but it's, it's in Jude as well. And, and you'll see that even today, right? But even then they were dealing with uh, people who were saying, just a few decades after the ascension, people saying Jesus isn't going to come back. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll address those. We'll look at those issues as we go along because we deal with the same issues today. Uh, they don't always look the same. You know, it's 2,000 years almost separated in time, but we deal with the same issues. And so we're going, for the next 10 weeks, starting today, we're going to let Peter and Jude, we're going to ask these two men who knew Jesus so well, we're going to ask them uh, to give us some tips, to give us some help with living, uh, living with sense in, in very serious times like our own. So our discussion today, that's introductory stuff, our discussion today begins with power, right? Back to this place where I started, this, this idea that God gives us power. Because when you live in serious times, you need power. And so Peter starts with that. He starts by telling his, his, his readers about power. So first two verses is introduction. It's the formal introduction. And, and uh, he introduces himself. So he, he starts out, he says, this letter's from, from me. It's from Simeon Peter, he says. This letter is from uh, Simeon Peter. Simon Peter is how we would usually understand it. Simeon is the Hebrew form of the, of the Greek name Simon. So you'll see both applied to him. Simeon, it's not a typo. It's not a mistake when you see Simeon there. Uh, he basically uses his, his Hebrew name, the name his mom and dad probably called him when he was a little boy. He was Simeon is, is what, he was, um, what he was named. Uh, and then you'll, you might remember from the Gospels that Jesus names him, kind of renames him, Jesus says, you will be called Peter, you'll be called Rock, uh, or Cephas is the Greek form of it, but, um, or no, Cephas is the, yeah, anyway, Peter, Peter, Rock, you are, you are a Simeon Peter, and so that's how he introduces himself. So the letter's from Simeon Peter. Then he tells us, I think this is really important, uh, he tells us how he thinks about himself. So how does Simeon Peter think about himself? Uh, he says, I am a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to pause on that for a minute. Notice what he bases his identity on. Notice what Peter thinks is important to say about himself. He does not base his identity on his ethnicity, right? He doesn't start with Simon Peter, a Jew from Israel. Uh, he doesn't base it on his career. Simon Peter, a successful fisherman from Galilee. He doesn't base it on his accomplishments or his failures for that matter, right? He doesn't base it on, on his successes or his failure. He doesn't say, Simon Peter, the miracle worker. You've heard about the things I did if you've read Acts, right? He doesn't start that way. Uh, nor does he say, Simon Peter, the guy who denied Jesus and made such a mess of things the night before he went to the cross. He, he doesn't deny himself that way at all. Or he doesn't uh, introduce himself that way. He doesn't uh, consider himself in those terms. He considers himself in relationship to Jesus. I am a servant of Jesus and a messenger of Jesus. That's what the word apostle means. I am a messenger and a servant of Jesus Christ. 
And so I'm, gonna, I'm spending a little more time than you think you might on just kind of the guy's introduction to himself, but I think it's really important. Peter's identity is tied to Jesus. And he thinks about himself in terms of who he is uh, with Christ and in Christ. And, and, and so right out of the gate, we're told to think of ourselves the same way. Think of ourselves in terms of our identity. Our identity is tied to Jesus Christ. That's how we have to think. And that is where he goes, right? So now he, he starts with who the writer of the letter is in an ancient letter. The next thing you do is you say who the letter is to, and that's what he does. And so he says this letter is to uh, those who have obtained, middle of verse 1, those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. That's who he's writing the letter to. So it's not like the Christians in such and such a place. It's, it's a general letter to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, he says. That is an amazing thing for Peter to say. Sometimes we, we move quickly past these introductory verses. Let's get to the good stuff. That's an amazing thing for Peter to say. He just told us he's an apostle, which the word means messenger, but it's also an office. For him, it's an office, uh, not an office that's available anymore. It's, it's just that first generation. But I'm an apostle of Jesus, Peter says. And then look, your faith is of the same standing as mine, he says. Another translation says, your faith is as precious as, as ours. Uh, he uses the plural. He's talking about himself and his fellow apostles. Your faith is uh, as of equal standing with ours or as precious as ours. Sometimes uh, we, we sell Peter short. And, and I think us Protestants, we, we are especially guilty of this. We sell Peter a little short. And what I mean is we focus, we focus so much on his weaknesses there's this tendency to do this with Peter, that we forget who this guy is, right? And so we talk about, you know, and I've heard preachers do this. I hope I haven't done it. Maybe I have. Forgive me if I have. But, you know, you, you know people get up and they'll be like, oh, Peter, he was so headstrong. Or, oh, Peter, I remember hearing a guy one time, Peter, he's just always sticking his foot in his mouth, huh? You know, and he's just screwing it up all the time, right? And we emphasize that part of Peter, or we emphasize how he denied Jesus on the night when Jesus was betrayed, and Peter, you know, Jesus is on trial, and Peter's over here like, nope, nope, I don't know him, right? And we, we emphasize that part of, of Peter's story. And, and I think we're well-intentioned. We do that because we identify with it. We screw up all the time, too. And, and so we identify with that part of Peter, and he did mess up. He definitely messed up. All of that is in Scripture. But Peter, I, I want to kind of rehabilitate his image a little bit here as we take up this letter. Peter is one of the 12. He's one of the 12 apostles. And like I said a moment ago, he's not just one of the 12. He's the leader of the 12. Jesus, you know, P Jesus looks to Peter and says, on this rock, not, not Peter the person, we wouldn't say that, but, but on your proclamation, Peter, you're the one who got it first. And, and it's very clear when you read through who gives the Pentecost sermon, it's Peter. Right? Peter's the leader. Peter is the leader of, of the apostles. He's not greater than the other apostles. He's a first among equals. But, but Peter is, is clearly the leader of the twelve. In fact, if you need more evidence of Peter's importance, Peter is so important in the early church that Paul, when he's getting started, the apostle Paul, Paul goes to Peter to get Peter's stamp of approval. You read about it in, uh, in Acts. It's there in Acts. It's like chapter 12 or 13, I think it is. It might be, it might be as late as 14. But, but Paul goes to Peter, and Paul is very careful in Galatians you know, to say, I didn't have to. Right? I didn't need to. My, I didn't, my, my mandate isn't from Peter. My mandate is from Jesus directly. That's very important to Paul's ministry uh, and, and his call as an apostle. 
And yet even Paul, who had a direct commission from Jesus, even Paul went to Peter as, as a recognition of Peter's authority and Peter's position uh, in, the, in the early church. And that guy, the leader of the apostles, says to you and me, the readers, that our faith is of equal standing with his. It's a little bit like uh, Albert Pujols, right? Albert Pujols going to some rookie baseball player and being like, hey, you're just as important to this team as I am, right? Now, Pujols has been tearing it up. He's been around for 20 plus years, finishing his career now with the Cardinals. You know, it would be like him saying, or, or Aaron Judge for you Yankee fans, you know, walking up to some rookie who's just playing his second game. Yeah, you're just as important to this Yankees team as I am. That's what, that's what Peter does here in a sense. He says, your faith is of equal standing. It's, of, it's equally precious. It's of equal standing in God's, in God's eyes. And, and I love that. I love it because I don't know how the world looks at you or at us. It's usually not very positive. But in God's kingdom, there are no second-class citizens. That's what that means. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. We have a faith of equal standing. There's no royalty, right? Royalty was much in the news this week. There's no royalty in God's kingdom. We, we, we have a faith of equal standing before, before the Savior. Then Peter tells us where that comes from, this source, uh, where, what the source is of this faith of equal standing. He says it comes from Jesus. Right? So it is uh, to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. How? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's from him, right? And so that's why our standing is equal uh, to Peter's. It's because our standing and Peter's standing uh, comes from what Jesus did for us. So our standing before God, see, we're just in the introduction, but there's deep stuff here. Our standing for God, before God is not based on what we do. It's based on what Jesus did. It's based on the righteousness of Jesus. Paul says the same thing. Lots of places say the same thing. Uh, one of my favorite verses, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 Paul says the same thing Peter says here, just different words. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, right? It's the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, Peter says. It's not your own doing, Paul writes in Ephesians. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so we have a, this faith of equal standing. Why are there no second-class citizens in heaven? It's because our righteousness is not rooted in what we do. Our righteousness is rooted in what Jesus did for us. It's our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that leads to the third part of a formal introduction, which is the opening blessing. So most ancient letters in Bible as well as outside of the Bible, who wrote it, who he writing, he or she's writing to, and then there's like a blessing, like a blessing on the front end. Uh, and Peter's blessing is, it's a very Christian blessing. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. All right, so to us, all of us, uh, believers of, with a faith of equal standing to his and one another's, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Uh, I love that word, uh, multiplied. So glad the Holy Spirit put that there. Uh, multiplied. Uh, he doesn't say added. Right? He says multiplied. Uh, it makes me think, I don't know if it was in Peter's head or not, but it might have been because he was there, but it makes me think of the feeding of the 5,000. Right? When, when, uh, when Jesus fed thousands of people with a little boy's lunch right? A little boy's lunchbox, right? Five loaves and two fishes, right? He, he takes a little boy's lunch and he, and he feeds all those people. He doesn't add, right? He doesn't, you know, five loaves plus five loaves plus five loaves. No, he multiplies. And that's how he feeds 
all of those people. And, and again, Peter saw that. Peter was there and he uses that word. And so when God multiplies something, he doesn't just give us a little bit. He gives us an abundance. He gives us an abundance. It's overflowing, right? It's, it's spilling over the sides, onto the floor, out into the hallway. You know, it's that kind of a picture. It's running all over the place. And, and that's what we have access to because of this faith of equal standing. We have access to God's grace and God's peace spilling out all over the place, if I, if I can use that kind of language. It's multiplied to us. So he's set us up with his introduction. Now he gets to power. And it flows right out of what he just said. So verses 3 and 4, the rest of our passage this morning, I think it's directly connected to verse 2 because now he's going to start to tell us what this multiplied grace and peace looks like. So what does it look like in our lives when God multiplies his grace and peace for us? Well, it starts with power. It starts with power. He says, his divine power. The his is the Jesus, is that we were just talking about. His divine power has granted, has given to us. His divine power has granted to us. So I'm going to stop there for a second. Uh, Peter says God has given us something. So here's grace and peace. Here's how, it, here's how it starts to overflow into our lives. He says God gives you something. He gives you power. There's a power grant made here at the beginning of, of the book. And not just any power, but God's power. Peter's very specific. It's divine power. It's God's own power that God is blessing us with. And so that's what, if you trust in Jesus, you've, you've entered into this faith of equal standing. What do you have access to? Verse 3, you have access to God's divine power at, at work in your life. And he could just stop there. He actually could have just stopped there, and we would have been, wow, that's great. That's enough. Let's, let's move on. But he doesn't stop there. He actually describes it. So for the rest of what I, I asked Dylan to read this morning, uh, I actually see... And six types of power. So if you'd like to take notes, now we'll get to the outline, that part of the outline this morning. Um, there are actually six ways this power gets manifested, six forms it takes would be another way you could think about it. Uh, and, and each one is connected to the one before. So I'm going to make them a list, but you'll see as we kind of go through it that each one kind of flows out of the one before. And so when God brings his power to bear in our lives, what kinds of things does he start doing? And, and that's these six things that we see in the rest of verses 3 and 4. So here we go. Here are uh, these six types of power uh, that God gives us, this power grant at the beginning of verse 3. Number one, the first type of power, is the power to live. That's what Peter says. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life, he says in verse 3. That's only half the statement. We'll get to the other half in a second. But he's given us all things that pertain to life. It's the power to live. That's good news, right? That's good news for weary people. Uh, I know not everybody feels this way. Some people are flying high these days. Things are going great. But some people will really connect with this. Uh, some of you who are listening right now are tired. You're tired. Uh, you, you're, you're dragging along. You're exhausted. You're tired from your job. You're tired from the demands of, of, of parenting. You're tired from the demands of school. It just started and you're already tired. Uh, maybe you're, you're tired by, uh, you know, bigger, you know, some challenge, maybe a health challenge you're facing, and it's just wearing you down. You're tired of that, that physical pain or that, that weakness that's been bothering you. 
Uh, maybe you're tired, you know, it's kind of bigger picture. You're tired of, of you know, the never-ending, it never seems to stop, doesn't it? The never-ending tension in our culture and, you know, and, and this and that. And I was trying to watch something on TV for a few minutes the other day. Um, and, uh, you know, immediately comes in the commercial, you know, with the, the attack ad. I'm like, oh, gosh, I forgot about that. Here we go again. Like, maybe you're just tired of some of that stuff. Right? It's all kinds of reasons to be exhausted. If you identify with that at all, this is good news because Peter says here that God gives us his divine power uh, just to live, to live, right? We, in him, we live and move and have our being. It's not out of our own resources. We're not just kind of a, a, an animal kind of going along like your, your dog or your cat or one of your farm animals. Uh, we get to live. He gives us the power to live. But that's just, uh, that's just warming us up. Number two, we also have the power to live godly. So it's not just live, but it's live godly. Uh, his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So this word godliness that uh, Peter uses here, uh, it, it describes um, like reverence, a reverence toward God. You could translate it as like piety or devotion. So for life and devotion or life and piety. And so what it is basically is the idea of a, a life that is pleasing to God. Right? So it doesn't mean necessarily a perfect life, but a life where our actions, our thoughts, our words, uh, our relationships, these, these are in alignment with God's will for us. That would be this idea of, of godliness. And what Peter says here is, we have the power to do that from God. Right? So we don't have to you know, make ourselves godly people that way. We have God's power to lean on. We have his Holy Spirit who lives within us when we are born again. And so we have his power forming godliness within us. Which means, if you think about this, it means that our goal in life, if you belong to Jesus, our goal in life is not just to get through. Right? Some Christians live that way, right? If I can just drag, I've known people who say this, you know, if I can just drag myself across the finish line, I can just drag my, my, my sorry self across the finish line into heaven, that'll be good enough. I think Peter would set the bar higher here for us. Right? Our goal is not to just get through. Our goal is to thrive in Christ, to spiritually thrive, right? to spiritually thrive. Uh, he's going to talk a lot. He talks a lot about growth in this letter. And we'll actually look at, uh, especially next, week, next week's passage, it'll stand out. Uh, but our goal is to grow into people who live a faithful, vibrant, spiritually vibrant, Christ-centered life. Not saying we won't have troubles. We'll have all kinds of troubles. Jesus told us we would. But a, but a life that thrives in Jesus, in our relationship with him. That actually brings us to the next one. Uh, the third thing we have power for, according to this text, uh, is the power to know God. Right, so this life in godliness, they have a source. They have a source. They come from something, and he tells us what it is. It's knowledge of God. So all of verse 3, uh, or more of verse 3, we have all things that pertain to life and godliness. Where, where do they come from, Peter? They come through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That's where uh, the, the power for life and godliness come from. They come from our knowledge of him who called us. So you end, you end up with, it's almost like a name of Jesus there, the one who called us to his own glory and excellence. You could almost you know, underline it if you like to do that kind of thing, and, and it's a, it's a, it's, it functions like a name of Jesus. So he's the one who called us to himself. 
So he called us to himself. We respond in faith, right? Holy Spirit-empowered faith, I would say. And so we put our faith in him, and that's who now we get to know. We are getting to know that God. That's the one whose power is at work in our lives. That's the one who's empowering us to live godly lives. And so when we think about, you know, the God that we serve, we go back to that idea of servant and messenger of, of, of God, we're putting our faith in, uh, we, we know who we're putting our faith in, right? So our God isn't distant, he's not far off, he's not remote, um, he, 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 we get to know him in a personal way. A lot of times we'll talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus. It's verses like this one, that's where we get that idea of, of knowing our God in person, uh, we're not just worshiping some fairy tale hero, right? Or we're not just worshiping some statue that sits on the mantelpiece or out in the backyard. Uh, we are worshiping and get to know the perfect, glorious, infinite creator and sustainer of everything. He's the one who called us. And we get to know him. We are, we are trusting our life to him. And, and his, his, he is at work in us personally. That's, that's that idea there. It's that knowledge of him. We'll come back to that concept next week because it, it's in next week's passage too. Uh, that knowledge of him takes us to the fourth type of power, uh, the f- number four that he talks about here. Uh, it, it, it's the power to trust. So because we know him, because we have the power to know him, we therefore have the power to trust him. And so we, we can talk now about the power to trust God's promises. Uh, you get that in verse four. So, so we have this knowledge by which... And if you just look at the the grammar here, I think when he says by which, he's talking about the knowledge. So we have this knowledge. Knowledge of who? Knowledge of the one who called us to himself. Uh, By which, so from that knowledge, by that knowledge, God has granted to us, and he's using the word grant again. It's the same word as the beginning of verse 3. By which God has granted to us his precious and very great promises. He has granted to us, he's given us, because we know him, uh, and because we trust him, <laughs> because we know him, now we can trust him. And he's granted us these promises that are, are trustworthy, that we can trust. That's, that's kind of how that works there. So, uh, so we have these promises, right? Because we, and so we know him personally, and so we trust his word. I think that's the connection between the two. Um, if, if one of you wanted, you know, if I was stuck on the side of the road, it's off the top of my head. If I was stuck on the side of the road and one of you pulled up, I would trust you to help me because I know you. Uh, if a complete stranger pulled up and looked kind of scary, I might not, you know, unlock the door, that kind of thing, or especially, if, you know, in a different sort of situation. It's, it's that idea of knowing somebody personally, therefore we trust him. And that's where he goes with this, personally trusting God's promises. And notice what he says about the promises. I really want to emphasize this. Um, he calls them uh, precious and very great. Precious and very great promises. So very great, that one's pretty, pretty clear. I mean, great, the word great means uh, you know, big. It's actually mega in Greek. So mega, we talk about something being mega, it's big. And his promises are big, but they're not just big, they're very big. So very big promises. But then he also says they're precious. Uh, and it, this is a word that means, it means costly or valuable. Right? So when you use it in context of like money or something like that, or treasure, it's, it's valuable. It's a valuable, costly treasure. And so it's just there, I picture heavy. There's this sense of heavy because they're big and they're valuable. And so God's promises are, are heavy with value. Uh, a few weeks ago, um, 
Laura and I took a, a trip down to Kansas City. It was kind of close to the end of, the, of my sabbatical, and uh, we just wanted to kind of do the weekend away thing, and, and we spent a few days just doing tourist things. We just did some, some touristy things we've wanted to do over the years. And uh, one of the places we visited was the Museum of Money. I don't know if anybody even knows this is down there, but one of the Federal Reserve Banks is in Kansas City, Missouri, and uh, they have a little museum on the first floor. They call it the Museum of Money, and it was pretty cool, and I don't know if I'd make the trip just for that, but, um, but if you're ever down in Kansas City, it's worth an hour or two. It was, was kind of cool, and they have all these things that kind of explain how our reserve system works, and these coins, they have a coin from every single president, or actually several coins from every president's, uh, uh, president's um administration. So it was pretty cool stuff. Uh, one of the coolest things was uh, they have a gold bar, right? An actual gold bar on display, not like behind some thick curtain or something. It was, it was on display. It was in this acrylic kind of box. And they built this box so that you could pick up the gold bar. You could actually lift this thing. And it was all secure. And it was, like I say, it was encased in acrylic. You weren't going get to get it, get it out of there. But, but they had designed it so you could reach inside the box and you could lift it. And so I'm like, all right, I've, I've always I wonder, uh, that must be pretty cool. And there was a sign next to it that said it's worth like $600,000, I think is what this, this bar, not much bigger than a bar, you, you know, a brick, a brick you might have in your backyard. And, uh, and so I reached into this thing and I went to lift it up and uh, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't lift it. And um, shows you my egotism, I assumed it was broken. Um, I'm like, oh, I think they, gosh, I think they forgot to unlock it this morning or something. <laughs> But then I thought, well, let me try again. And, you know, you kind of bend the knees kind of thing. And, and, uh, and then I could move it. I was able to, to lift it up. And it was in this, like, it was mounted on this rack. And so, um, so it had these sliders. And, and, and then I could lift it. When I was, you know, a little more intentional, braced my elbows a little bit. Then I could lift it. But it was heavy. I was shocked at how heavy this brick was, this, this bar uh, of gold. And I thought of that this week as I was reading about the, the precious and very great promises, the weighty, heavy promises of God. That's what we're trusting. And we can trust them. Why do we, why do we trust these? I mean, you will live forever in joy and happiness in the presence of God. That is a huge promise. Why do we trust it? Because we know him. We know him personally, right? We know him. We've experienced to varying degrees, right? His touch in our lives. I know we go through dry seasons, but we know him. We know him. And so we trust him. We trust his great and weighty promises. Now, from there, there's, there's two more types of power here. In the flow of uh, Peter's argument, what he does is, I think, in the rest of verse 4, he zeroes in on two, two of those promises. So there are hundreds of promises that God makes to us in the Scriptures. But I think what you get in the last part of verse 4 is two of them, and they're both still tied back to this power grant that he started telling us about at the beginning of verse 3. So, so number 5, what, el- what other kind of power does he tell us about here? It's the power to live a new life. And this does kind of touch back on numbers 1 and 2, so I'm not saying they're all completely distinct from each other, but, but it's phrased in a new way here. It's power to live a new life now. Uh, where does he say that? He says, uh, God has done this. He's given us these great and precious promises so that through them, through the promises, you may become partakers, he says, of the divine nature. That's a big statement. Uh, Through the great and precious promises of God, we can become partakers of the divine nature. Now, 
Peter is not saying we become gods, right? And there, unethical people have, have twisted that verse and, and, and kind of you know, made it sound as if Peter is saying here that we can become divine beings, that we become gods. Uh, that, that's not what the claim is. Uh, Peter's actually borrowing some language that um, uh, pagans would have used to promote their lies, and he kind of intentionally borrows that language to set Christianity apart from it. But really, all he's doing here is he's saying the same thing. It's, a, it's, it's the same thing Peter, excuse me, Paul says all over the place in his letters. And it's a doctrine. I don't know if it's a formal doctrine. I like to think of it as a doctrine. It's a doctrine called union with Christ. That's all Peter's describing here. He's describing what we call union with Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, from that point on, we are united with him. And that's the language you'll see all throughout the the New Testament. So many times, hundreds of times, Paul uh, will use that kind of language. We are in Christ, in him. He is in us and we are in him. Uh, We are united with Christ. And so, uh, and that's the sense in which we become partakers of, of the divine nature. It's because of, again, our identity's tied where? It's tied to our relationship with Jesus. It's tied to him. And so his righteousness, Christ's righteousness, becomes our righteousness. It's not just a fiction. It's actually true. God applies Christ's righteousness to us. It's because of our union with Christ. His righteousness is our righteousness. His innocence becomes our innocence. His family connection to the Father becomes our family connection to the Father. This is how we become children of God, right? First, first John, behold what manner of love uh, God has for us, that he has called us, he has made us children of God. We're God's children because Jesus is in that eternal son, father-son relationship uh, with, with the Father. And it, it all comes back to this, being united with Christ. Um, just to give you a few verses, uh, because it is so important, uh, you know, I say Paul talks about it. Let me show you where Paul talks about it. A few places. Uh, Romans uses this language. Romans 6, verse 5. Uh, if we have been united with him, talking about Jesus, if we've been united with him in, death, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Right, so Christ's death has been applied to us, therefore we will be raised to new life just like he is. Uh, again, uh, Galatians 2.20 Paul, one, another of my own favorites. I am crucified with Christ. Says a man, writes a man who's not crucified. I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. How does Paul say that? It's because of his union with Christ. Jesus is now living his life through me, he says. Uh, another one, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, right? If anyone's in union with Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Uh, Jesus talks about it. He, ta- he calls it being born again or born from above, right? John chapter 3, Nicodemus says, what do I got to do? And Jesus says, you must be born again. <laughs> you need to be transformed on the inside. Uh, you, and, and how does that happen? It happens through union with Christ, right? That's what you need. And, and I would argue that's what Peter is saying. So when, Peter, so when you see that, and I know those are striking words, uh, whoa, wait, I'm a partaker of the divine nature. What does that mean? It means Christ is in me and I am in Christ. Christ is in me and I am in Christ because of what he's done for me and because of, of my faith in him. That's true for all of us. And so he makes us new people and new people get to live a new, a new life. Right? We're not defined anymore by those things from the past. And then finally, and it flows directly out of that one, the last one we'll talk about this morning, uh, is that uh, we have the power to escape 
the corruption of sin. It flows right out of that new life. We have the power to escape the corruption of sin. And he says that at the very end, now, we've, now that we've become partakers of the divine nature, uh, we have therefore escaped, that's his word, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world uh, because of sinful desire. I'm going to simplify that phrase for study's sake. Sin's corruption is what he's talking about. We've escaped the power of sin's corruption. Sin is powerful. You got it. We got to, this, this is meaningless if we don't acknowledge that. Sin is powerful. And we've all seen it, right? We've seen it in our own lives. <clears throat> we've seen it in our families' lives. We've seen it in our children's lives, our siblings' lives, our parents' lives. Uh, we've seen it in our friends' lives. We've seen, it in, uh, we've seen it in our churches. We've seen it in our public institutions. We see it in the news. We see it on social media. We see it all over the place. Sin is powerful. But Jesus is more powerful. That's the crucial part of this. Yes, sin is powerful, but we've escaped its corruption because the one whom we are in, the one we have, with whom we have union, uh, is more powerful. And so the power of sin is great, but Christ within us is, is greater. And so we've escaped. We escape uh, the power of sin's corruption in and through him. You know, sometimes it, it feels like uh, temptation is, is so powerful we just can't get away. And, and I, I, I wonder if that isn't behind some of the stuff we'll see here when we see kind of uh, Christian leaders who are telling people, oh, it doesn't matter how you behave. It's almost like this idea, well, sin, you know, temptation is so strong, we can't escape it. Sin is so strong, we can't escape it. Peter stakes out from the beginning, that's not true. We can escape. And the reason we can escape is that we've already escaped. You see how he uses the, the past tense there. He says, it's, it's already done, having escaped. We've, ha- we've already escaped from the corruption of sin. Why? Because we're already new creations. Why? Because Jesus already broke the power of sin in our lives. When did he do that? He did it when he died on the cross and he rose again from the dead. So yes, we do still struggle. Right? This issue actually came up in this morning's Sunday school class. Uh, it's not an issue. It, it's, we're not arguing perfectionism here. Peter's not saying, oh, you're going to be perfect now. Yes, we still struggle with sin. But the ongoing struggle we all wrestle with, it's just a mop-up operation in that sense because the battle is already won. The battle's already won. We've already escaped if we're in Christ. And, and now it's just the daily process of cleaning up the mess. So don't give up. Don't give up in your struggle with sin. Maybe even the last few days have been hard for you. Sometimes that we run into spots like that. Uh, whether that's true or not, don't give up. Uh, we have the power to overcome temptation because in Christ... We've already escaped sin's corruption. Well, I mentioned last week, uh, my, my first sermon back, that um, my wife and I, Laura, and I did a lot of driving this summer uh, while I was uh, on sabbatical. Um, we drove to different churches. I think that's the main thing I said. You know, we, we visited other churches on Sunday mornings just to kind of get a feel, to do a little research on, on churches in the region. And uh, that involved a lot of driving on Sunday mornings. I know a couple of Sundays we drove at least two hours to get to a, a church that we wanted to visit. Um, we went down to Kansas City uh, one weekend. Uh, we went to Omaha several times, Des Moines. We went out to Iowa City a few times. Our, our kids are out there. And we also took a big trip. We, we went out to New York, and we drove. Uh, we drove all the way to New York for some, to visit my family out there, our family out there, and we zoomed down to New Jersey. I mean, we just put, I, I never counted them up, but we put thousands of miles on, uh, on our, our main car this, this summer. And let me tell you something about those miles that we drove. In all the miles we drove, I never worried about running out of power. 
<laughs> not even once. I never worried about it because no matter where we went, right, the way it's all laid out, no matter where we went, uh, there was always a gas station within reach, right? You know, you get up the app, you get out the app, where's the next one? You know, okay, 20 miles, 20 miles ahead and five to the south, you know, even on the interstates, it's true, right? You're, you're, there's always a, a gas station within reach. So as long as you don't let the tank get all the way down to the E and the car doesn't let you do that, it starts beeping at you if you get, to, get down too low. As long as you don't let it get all the way down, you know you have access, right? We always, all those thousands of miles, we always knew we had access to the power that we needed. You and I have the same thing. We have the same thing as followers of Jesus. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you have access to the power you need to live for Jesus. You have the power to live in general, right? You do not have to stumble through your days like a spiritual zombie, like so many do. So many do. We have the power to live our days. We have the power to live godly, right? We have the power to live godly lives. It's not based on our own righteousness and our own ability to kind of screw up our, our self-discipline and just be, be, be gooder, right? It's not de- it doesn't depend on our ability to be better. It depends on God through us. Uh, we have the power to know God personally. We have the power to trust his promises because we know he's trustworthy. Uh, we have the power to live a new life in him. We're not defined by our failures. We're not defined by the things that have been done to us or that we've done to others. Uh, We have the power to live a new life, and we have the power to overcome sin, to overcome temptation, because uh, he has already set us free uh, in and through through Jesus. Would you pray with me, please? Uh, Lord, thank you so much for giving us what we need uh, to live our lives for you, Uh, and we are just so grateful for that. Uh, As I think of that list we just made together, Lord, uh, different ones of us need to hear different ones of those. Some of us really needed to hear that we have the power to overcome sin, that we're not just left to deal with it uh, in our own devices. Some of us needed the first one, that just just the power to get up tomorrow morning. Maybe somebody here was wondering if if they were even going to be able to do that. Uh, And all the rest of them, you know what we needed to hear this morning because you know our hearts, you know our situations intimately and personally. That's kind of another one of the points this morning. And so we thank you for that. And I would just ask that for myself, for everyone who's listening to this here and online, that you would um, help us to trust you in that, to lean into your power, to allow you to work in us and through us for your glory and for our good. And it's in Jesus' name we ask all that. Amen.